shut up. <laughs> I'm an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. My name is Jack. I just followed Rodney's advice and it's making me nervous. And, and before I forget it, it's very important for me to mention Hank real quick. I don't want any retribution later. <laughs> I really, really am grateful to be here and I'm proud to be a part of Alcoholics Anonymous and of this conference. And so uh, it's a privilege and a pleasure and I, I want to be sure that I convey that, and, you know, even if I get a little lightheaded and lighthearted at times, I'm truly privileged to be a member of this fellowship. Uh, we've had a good time getting here and being here. Uh, you know... When I was drinking, I, I had a lot of blackouts. I'll get into that probably somewhere along the, in, in the course of this next hour. But uh, So I had a lot of difficulties when I was drinking with, with my memory. I also did a lot of drugs of various kinds, and they messed with my mind a bit too. And, uh, and so it was difficult, you know. And, and then I got sober, and not everything returned immediately. And... And it took a little while, but then, then uh, I, got, I was maybe four or five years sober, and, and I was just delighted because my memory began to return pretty, pretty completely. And, and I had passed for intelligent for a long time by having a good memory, you know, and, and I was really pleased with that. And uh, now as I've managed to stay sober longer, I realize that was just a window of opportunity. Uh, <laughs> It has begun to disappear again, uh, and uh, and everybody's been uh, laughing at me here in this weekend because I've managed to just uh, convey the impression that I am uh, completely absent-minded. You know, I don't know where they got the idea of that, but uh, it might have been from a couple of small incidents that occurred uh, on the plane from. Los Angeles to Minneapolis, uh, the night before we got on the plane, a uh, guy I sponsor, uh, you're all very careful not to use the term baby, but in California we call them babies, and so a baby of mine had returned from Akron and gave me a commuter cup, a coffee cup, which says, and I was so delighted with it, it says on it, uh, I drank at Dr. Bob's house, you know? And I thought that was really cute, and I was going to bring it here because I knew Bob was going to be here, and uh, I left it on the plane. <laughs> yeah. And not only that, but I had uh, another guy I sponsor out there um, has been very generous to me when I, was, when I had my 21st birthday in June. He gave me a membership to a health club, and uh, God knows I needed it, you know, and, and that, that was great. And uh, two months later, the health club went out of business. <laughs> I now sponsor the owner, so that may explain to you how it went out of business. <laughs> and, and then at Christmas, uh, the same fella gave me this marvelous thing. And I must admit, I've been a little concerned about this memory loss of mine. And so he gave me uh, an electronic device, which is called the Wizard, you know, and some of you may know about it. And it's, 
uh, it's a memo pad and, and a scheduler and a telephone directory and it fits in the palm of your hand and I just loved it, man. And I put in, I've really been working on inputting that thing. I've got a whole bunch of telephone numbers and my entire schedule for the year as far as, as speaking engagements are concerned and all that kind of thing. And I've put in anniversaries and all the kids' birthdays and I left that on the plane too. <laughs> So I've lost my memory about three times so far in my life, you know, and uh, so that's the way it's going. And in spite of all that, I'm having a good time, you know. Uh, I didn't have any sense that I was going to actually stay here. That is not uh, something that I realized. I, I was I was delighted to hear Betty uh, when she was saying that uh, she had known all those years that she was an alcoholic. Uh, I was relieved to hear that she had a moment of doubt later, you know, but uh, in my case, it wasn't really like that. The evidence that I was an alcoholic was in full and documented uh, two days after I started drinking, but I didn't get it. It never occurred to me that I was an alcoholic. It really didn't. I mean, that that is the very last thought I had. Now, of course, it was denial. I mean, I, I, I fully understand that, but I didn't then. I, I mean, I was felt that I was honestly searching for the cause of my difficulties and it never occurred to me that it might have been alcohol. So it wasn't real likely that I was going to stay here when I got here. Um, and it was not because I had had no problems in my life and it was not because I didn't bring problems with me into the fellowship. I had plenty of problems. I had been arrested ten times by the time I got to you. Uh, I started drinking relatively late in life, guys, uh, as we measure alcoholism and in, in, in sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous today. Uh, I didn't actually start drinking till I was 16 years old, you know. I mean, I have friends who've been sober several years by then, you know, uh, really. Uh, but uh, uh, Hank mentioned his son... Uh, uh, Matt went to Alateen with my son, and, and my son still goes to Al-Anon, but uh, Matt graduated. <laughs> he came right into AA. <laughs> you know? uh, but, so I didn't start drinking till I was 16. Um, actually, I can explain that. The reason it took me so long to get to booze is that I actually had begun to behave alcoholically uh, before I ever got to booze. Uh, See, my father was an alcoholic, and I knew that by the time I was four years old. I didn't know the word, but I knew the condition. Uh, when, if, if my dad was not home from work, he was a, I was born and raised in South Bend, Indiana, and he was, uh, worked at Studebaker's for 36 years. And if he was not home from work at 5.20, I knew there was a problem because that meant he had stopped on the way to get a beer. And then I started to pray that he would be home by six. If he was home by six, everything was all right. He'd had a couple of beers. He was even more fun than usual. And at six o'clock is when mother served supper and she wouldn't be raising Cain, you know. But if he missed that six o'clock deadline, then I started to pray he would not get home until we were all in bed. Because my reaction to my father's drinking was way beyond the cause. It really was overreaction. I was the oldest of the five kids, and my reaction was stronger than any of theirs, you know. And as it turns out, I'm the only one in AA, too. 
I, I was terrified by my dad's drinking. And, and I was terrified for, for what I now recognize was an alcoholic reason. It was not because I was afraid of his violence, you know, and I have pried his fingers from around my mother's throat and I've, and I've physically fought him and, and all those things. It wasn't that. It, 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 was, it was much worse than that for me. I was terrified that he was going to embarrass us, that, that the, the argument would spill out onto the front lawn and that the, the neighbors would see it, or that it would escalate and, and the police would have to be called, or that, or that my uncles would come down and subdue him, you know, uh, or that he would do some god-awful attention-getting thing like putting his fist through the kitchen window and severing an artery in his hand and spewing blood all over the kitchen. And I was horrified that I'd have to go to school the next day. And they'd all know. And I hated to look bad. I hated to have you know what was going on inside of me. You know, and as the oldest kid, I thought my job was to control him and his alcoholism. And by the time I was 14, I was a failure. I couldn't do that. I could not manage that man. And so I decided to escape from the situation. And, uh, and I have never been really very straightforward. That's an alcoholic trait of mine. Uh, and I decided to escape from that house with any, without anyone knowing that I was running away from home. And if you're Irish Catholic in South Bend, Indiana, there is no more socially acceptable way to leave home than to go study to be a priest at Notre Dame. So I did that when I was 14, and I was out there for two and a half years, uh, 20 hours of silence a day from the ages of 14 through 16, trying not to think about girls. <laughs> Finally, I said, what an order. I can't go through with it. <laughs> and I came home, and the next night, I went down to the park with some of the guys who had been in regular high school, and when I arrived at that park, I was shy, uh, academic, religious, uh, even a little spiritual, you know, and I was small, and I got down there, and I had a few beers, and I had a personality change. I became hostile and arrogant, and, and I started a fight, and I tried to kill everybody I could find. I took off my shoe and shattered the windshield of one of these kids' cars, and it took three guys to subdue old 5'6", 120, because I went crazy. They just couldn't. Finally, they did. And they got me in a car and put me in the back and held me to the floor. Two of them sat in the back seat and held me to the floor with their feet, and a third guy drove me home. And on the way home, I experienced another personality change. I just became warm and wonderful. <laughs> and I cried. And I threw up on his floor. And they got me to my house and they helped me out of the car and they helped me up the front steps and they leaned me against the front door of my house like a thing and they pushed the doorbell and ran because they didn't want to deal with my father. And my father opened the door and here was his oldest son, ex-seminarian by one day, drunk. And dad did the only thing he knew how to do. He punched me out. And that was my first night of serious drinking. And I loved it, man, I loved it. I never skipped a drink for the next 24 years, you know, I was just off and gone. And, and, you know, there are plenty of symptoms right in there. A lot of symptoms that first night for me, you know, and I'm, I'm sure there are newer people here or people who are still not absolutely convinced that they are alcoholic. And, uh, 
it's important for me to point out to you that nothing I say, none of my experiences are requirements for membership. You know, you need not have gone through anything that I did in order to be an actual full-blown and legitimate member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I have a lot of friends in AA who have, who have never been arrested, you know, never been to jail, never been to prison. And, and they are full-fledged members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they're welcome. We may look down on them a little bit, but they're welcome. And I, I, other, other friends of mine have never experienced blackouts, and I had blackouts from the first day. I had a blackout that first night, and I had thousands of them over the years. You know, it scared me after I got into AA. I was here about two, three months, and I heard some guy describing in, a, in very somber tones the fact that every time one experiences a blackout, that it is an electrical short circuit in which dead cells occur. And right about then, it dawned on me that I have about a pound of pudding up there, you know. <laughs> wow, a blackout every time? Oh, wow. But it isn't a requirement for membership. And so if you are sitting out there wondering if you're a real alcoholic and have never had a, a blackout, it's, it's possible, you know. And right now, I'm sure there are many people here who have never experienced a blackout. And so for those, let me just share a little bit with you what it's like. A blackout, in my case, is a period of time ranging anywhere from a half an hour to five days, during which I was extremely active <laughs> and not present. You know what I mean? <laughs> Boy, it's a weird experience. Wake up in the middle of a fist fight and not know whose side you're on. Find yourself driving 90 miles an hour down a highway and not know whether you're chasing or being chased, you know. It's weird. And, and I had all those symptoms first night, but it never occurred to me that I was an alcoholic. It just didn't occur. And so by the time I got to you, uh, I had plenty of problems. Uh, my liver was failing. Um, I, I hadn't worked in three years. I used to describe myself in those days as a functioning alcoholic. Well, but my definition of a functioning alcoholic is somebody that's married to somebody that does work. See, that's how that is. And, uh, and so that, that was going on. My four children, the youngest was seven, the oldest was 20, had gotten together and kicked me out of my house. The oldest is, was living in Arizona, and she flew in to California specifically to tell me, along with her brothers and sister, brother and sisters that they did not love me they didn't love me want me or need me and they told me to get the hell out of their lives and to leave their mother alone that I was killing her and they had packed a suitcase for me and they handed me that suitcase and I marched out of that house feeling lonely separate different angry and afraid that's how I felt when I was four years old I always felt like that and I did the only thing I have ever known how to do. I got drunk. I don't know what else you do. And I had had the foresight to steal the keys to the car, so I had a place to sleep that night. And I called her the next morning and begged her like a child to take me back. And she'd been together with, uh, she and I had been there together for 17 years at the time, and she didn't know any better, so she did. Now, you got a brief opportunity to meet my wife uh, earlier. And I must tell you that when I met her in Greenwich Village in 1954, she was a fun-loving, easygoing, friendly kind of a gal. You know, 
Yeah, no, she really was. She loved to talk. She loved to visit bars. She liked to go everywhere. And we did. We were all over the village in those days. And, and it, it was a great deal of fun. <coughs> and it, by the time we'd been together for 17 years, her attitude had deteriorated considerably. <laughs> uh, she was no fun at all. I mean, for anybody, she was no fun. I mean, she and she was bitter and mean, you know, and she'd make these cruel little jokes and 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 I'm very sensitive, you know, and she she'd hurt my feelings. She she'd say things like uh, I have five children, he's the oldest, you know. And oh, man. That hurts. And she took to to doing these kind of mean-spirited little practical jokes. I mean, I used to go to a little beer bar occasionally named Jay Sloan's, and she began to forward my mail there. <laughs> oh, that's embarrassing, man, you know. You walk in, the bartender says, there's mail for you. Oh, Jesus. Oh, man. So it was, it was hard, you know. And so she, had, she, she took me back that, that day, you know, that, that next morning. And, and so I, I, she was divorcing me. She had insisted that she was going to do that. I had been hallucinating for about a year and a half, not sure of the exact time of the onset, but uh, about a year and a half I had been hallucinating on a fairly regular basis. Uh, Dick Cavett used to send me secret messages on his television show, and I took notes. I actually, no, I really did. And it was, uh, that's hard. And if you, if you happen to be a hallucinator, and you're trying to keep people from finding out, that you're not quite the same as they are, it's tricky. I mean, it is. You have to be very alert, see? You have to watch them because you never know if what they are seeing and hearing is the same thing you're seeing and hearing. You know, it's tough. And uh, just once in a while, I'd get caught. I mean, I remember one time uh, I was sitting there in the bosom of my family, you know, four hostile kids and a wife that was divorcing me, and the phone rang. And it was never for me, I knew that. And the phone would ring and ring and ring about nine times. And finally, I just marched over and picked it up and said, hello. And everybody in my family looked at me funny, you know. Oh, maybe the phone didn't ring, oh, you know. You can't, you can't very well hand the phone to your seven-year-old and say, honey, do you hear a voice on the other end? You know, you can't do that. So, and I did hear a voice on the other end, so that was all right. I just had a conversation, you know, hung up and pretended to ignore the way they were looking at me, you know. But, I mean, that's, that's the state of my condition in, in, when I got here. It was just real bad. And, and I got I kicked out of the house by those kids, and I slept in the car that night, and I called her the next morning and begged her like a child to take me back, and she didn't know any better, so she did. And then later on that day, after supper, uh, I'm no fool, after supper I picked a fight with her and, uh, and I had stole the keys again and, and $10 out of her purse and, and I marched out of that house after our argument and went over to Jay Sloan's to see if there was any mail, you know. And, <laughs> and, and I found a little girl about the age of my oldest daughter there and she was a good deal more sympathetic to me than my wife had ever been. And, uh, and we closed that bar together. And then by the route we were taking, apparently we were going to go back to my house. Well, I guess I was going to introduce my wife to her replacement, you know. Uh, fortunately, that plan got interrupted. Uh, 
I got, I got arrested again. It was for the tenth time. Uh, the first time I was arrested was when I was 17, six months after I started drinking, and that arrest was for manslaughter. And I didn't actually go to jail for it, uh, although I was guilty. Uh, I was in South Bend, and, and my family knew a lot of people, and, and the fix went in, and a deputy sheriff perjured himself. And he did it for those who probably needed an Al-Anon meeting, that man, because what he did is help me to avoid the consequences of my actions. He helped me to evade my responsibilities. And uh, so instead of, um, one of the reasons he did it is that I was from a poor family and I'd won a scholarship to the university and he didn't want to interrupt the promising career of a bright young 17-year-old, you know. And so uh, he let me slide. I didn't go to jail. Instead, I went to Notre Dame, you know, and, and, and I didn't deserve that and I didn't expect it. And so you didn't find me guilty. The state of Indiana didn't find me guilty, but I did. And I sentenced myself, you know, and... Uh, that one of the one of the worst punishments that we have ever devised for people in prison if they misbehave the worst thing we know how to do is sentence them to solitary confinement and i did that to me for many many years i was i was in solitary confinement in the middle of my family in the middle of the bar in the middle of the dance floor in the middle of the world i was all alone and that's just the way it always was and so you know, uh, I had been arrested the first time for, for manslaughter and then later for inciting a riot and contributing to the delinquency of a minor and a variety of charges. And this very last one, this very last arrest, is the only one that I ever contested. Uh, I'm still not certain that they had probable cause that night. See, all that happened is that my extreme caution while driving, and there was some reason for caution in my case. I had totaled 12 cars by then, my extreme caution while driving drew the attention of the heat to me that night. I sat through three green lights waiting for the right one, you know. I just couldn't get the right shade of green, you know what I mean? And they thought that was a little strange and they pulled me over and discovered to nobody's surprise that I was drunk. I measured 2-7 that night, thank you. And spent the night in the sheriff's day in the deputy station there. And, uh, you know, I was watching the Rodney King trial out in California, and they had a, an alcohol impairment specialist who testified in that trial uh, as to the damage that one nine blood alcohol content would do to somebody 6'4", 245 pounds. And I was thinking, can you imagine what 27 would do to somebody 5'6", 130? Man, I should have been dead not driving, you know. But uh, that's what happened. They gave me a kick out at 5.30, and I called my wife of 17 years, and we had one of our typical conversations. I said, where the hell were you? When I needed you, where were you? And she said, I was there. I did come down to bail you out, and they wouldn't let me. Stay where you are, and I'll come get you. And I said, don't bother, I'll walk. And I hung up on her. To this day, I don't know why I called her. <laughs> I guess just to make her feel bad, you know. And I walked home, stumbled and staggered and stopped on the way to get well. And when I got home, she was going to work. And she stood there and she said, the kids were right. I never should have let you back and I never will again. And, you know, over the years, I had developed a number of skills, survival skills necessary to an alcoholic of my type. And if you got my size in my mouth, you better know when to duck and run, you know. And, and so I had learned how to tell when they really mean it. 
and she stood there and said, "This is it's over now, and I'm never going to let you back again. And I knew for a fact she meant it this time. I had been in and out of that house, we figure, about a hundred times. I had marched out, stormed out, been locked out, escaped, you know. But this time, this time, it really was over, and I knew it. And she went on to work, and I stood there feeling lonely, separate, different, angry, and afraid. I did the only thing I have ever known how to do under those circumstances. I went into the kitchen, reached under the kitchen sink, way around the back where I had a bottle of white wine stashed for emergencies, you understand? And, uh, and I tapped that bottle, and I, and I smoked the last of my dope. I had very little left. I rolled the skinniest little J you ever saw, you know, and then licked the baggie, you know, waste not, want not. My mother taught me that. I smoked the dope and drank the wine and passed out on the bed. Nothing new. And Jean went to work, and for the first time in our relationship, 17 years, a new thought occurred to her. And when she got to work, she grabbed a phone book and looked up alcoholism. That had never occurred to her. And she came back home. And she found me lying there on the bed, not bothering anybody, you know. And uh, she tried to get me awake. It wasn't always that easy in those days. And uh, by the time she got me conscious, she was crying. Now, I had seen her cry many times in pain, fear, rage, humiliation, hatred. I know she hated me that night in front of those four kids when she tried to put a knife in my belly. I didn't object. I raised my hands. I said, go ahead and do it. Do it. You would be doing us both a favor. Just do it. But she couldn't. She just stood there and cried. And when I woke up that morning, she was crying, but I didn't recognize the nature of her tears. I was sober a little while before it dawned on me that those were tears of compassion. That, that as she got me awake that morning, it dawned on her that I was dying of a disease that I never chose to have. And so when she finally got me awake, she blurted out what they had told her to say. She said, Jack, you're sick. I knew that. <laughs> Man, you've been through the three days I've been through, you'd be sick too. I've been doing weed, speed, and booze for three days. Of course I'm sick. She said, let me get you help. I said, okay. I didn't ask her what kind. Who cares? I needed help to sit up, you know. <laughs> and she went to the phone, and I followed her, shuffled after her. And when I finally got there, she had a guy on the phone. She handed the phone to me, and she said, he wants to talk to you. That surprised both of us. <laughs> and I grabbed that phone, and this guy said, hi, my name is Bud. I'm an alcoholic. Can I help you? Don't talk to me like that. I don't want your patronizing, self-righteous, religious nonsense. Just leave me alone. And I heard myself say to that guy, maybe you could. I don't know where that came from. He said, all right, here's what I want you to do. Man, don't tell me what to do. I cannot follow your rules. I never have. I don't like your rules. I used to run red lights for drill. You know what I mean? Don't tell me what to do. The best job I had had up to then, and maybe still the best job, one of them anyway, was I was a professor at a university and head of the department. And God, I loved that job, and I needed it. I'd been fired from the job I had before that. And, of course, I needed to support the family. But more important to me, that job had a little prestige attached to it. And I have been filled with self-loathing my whole life. And the only relief I ever get from that is if I can impress you. And it only lasts as long as you're impressed. And I thought that job might impress you. So I wanted that job, and I worked at keeping it, and I did well. First year I, <coughs> excuse me. The first year I was there, I instituted a couple of new programs. One of them began to get some national attention. 
But the second year I was there, my defiance and my rebellion and my just inability to follow the rules, you know, began to, to surface. And, and I organized 26 kids on campus. I was the co-founder and only white member of the Black Student Union. And I was encouraging those kids to blow up the administration building. <laughs> so they fired my ass is what happened, you know. But... Uh, I can't follow rules, you know, and this guy's telling me what to do. He said, now, here's what I want you to do. Don't use, don't drink, and come see me. And I heard myself say, okay, I don't know where that came from. I said, okay, where are you? And he said, Oxnard. I said, Oxnard? Man, that's 77 miles from where I live. How do you expect me to get there? And he said, drive. <laughs> Smartass. <laughs> he didn't understand my problem. I had just agreed not to use and drink. And if I don't use and drink for the length of time it takes me to get to Oxnard, neurological events occur, you know. <laughs> Sudden involuntary movements, I mean, you know. I believe medically they're called myoclonic jerks, you know. People wave back at you, man. I mean, <laughs> I was not going to be able to drive. I knew that. And maybe she would. So I went to what's-her-name and said, would you be willing to drive? And she did, she agreed. And so that's what happened. Gene drove and I twitched. <laughs> and we got up there. This guy's name was Bud. He had a year and a half of sobriety at the time. And he sat us down and he told us what it used to be like, what happened and what it was like then for him. Uh, I wasn't all that impressed with his year and a half. I wasn't even quite sure what it was, you know. But as he started to talk to me about him, it got clear to me that this guy knew what it felt like to be me at 3 a.m. I thought nobody knew that. That was my job. My job was to keep you from finding out. I was perfectly willing to share my opinions with you, but I did not want you to know what was going on inside of me. And this guy already knew. And I must say that did get my attention. And he, was ma he, he managed to extract a promise from me. And I had given up making promises. I don't keep them, so I stopped making them, you know. And he got me to promise that I would read the book Alcoholics Anonymous before I took another drink. And I said I would do that. And then he convinced me to stay there that night. And Gene grabbed those car keys and got the hell out of there before I changed my mind. <laughs> and uh, next morning, because we had no money, they moved us out of the detox center and put me in a 12-step in a house. And at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday morning, I was standing underneath a palm tree in Oxnard, California, and I had just successfully completed the AA program. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, he explained how you do it. He said, you do it one day at a time. And I had just done that. I had just been 24 hours without anything at all. No, no grass, no, no booze, no wine, no beer, no not, you know, no acid, mescaline, psilocybin, heroin, cocaine, second all, two and all, nothing at all for 24 hours. And I did not like it. <laughs> I decided to resign from your organization, you know. And then I realized I promised that fool I'd read the book before I took a drink. So I didn't want any obligations on me, so I went in there and found the book. And one of the many symptoms of my disease that had developed by then is that I had become an intellectual. I now define an intellectual as someone who has been educated beyond his capacity, you know. 
But in those days, it was very important to me. It was a desperate effort on my part to gain some control. If I could understand the nature of the human psyche or the universe, maybe I could gain some control. And I had been out of control since I was 16 years old. Also, it was an effort on my part to impress you because I have to impress you. And so for those reasons, I was an intellectual. And I picked up that book and I immediately discovered that it did not meet my literary standards. A book that plain spoken and I thought simple minded could hardly be of use to somebody of my complexity, don't you know? I mean, I could find things in that book to just to make fun of. I mean, there's a, there's a line in there that suggests, for example, that I should substitute for my drinking. Now, I've given you a little hint about my drinking. I should substitute for my drinking the fellowship. <laughs> oh, man. Come on. I mean, hanging out with you is not going to keep me sober. Let's start with the fact that I don't like people, okay? I didn't even like the word fellowship. It sounded to me like a Baptist softball team. I don't want to be part of your fellowship. And I could see through that book's feeble efforts to hide its real intent behind euphemisms like higher power. That book was trying to cram God down my throat. And I did not believe in God. And I didn't think you should either. One of my little entertainments in those days was to go to bars named Molly Malone's or Barney's Beanery and find some big Irish Catholic and get him into a discussion. I'd say, do you believe in God? And he'd say, oh, yeah. I'd say, a loving, just, and merciful God, right? And he'd say, right. I'd say, yeah. What about malformed children and disease and war and poverty and bigotry and death? Where is your loving God? And usually about then, they would beat me up to show me there was a power greater than myself. <laughs> and that was the attitude with which I read that book. And in spite of my attitude, when I got to page 21 of that book for the first time, it got clear to me what was the matter with me. And I really had been trying to figure that out for a lot of years. I had been willing to be diagnosed a variety of things. Paranoid schizophrenic, manic depressive, psychopath, sociopath, artist, any of those <laughs> diagnoses. And uh, page 21 describes what it calls a real alcoholic. It said they are seldom mildly intoxicated, usually more or less insanely drunk. It said they do absurd, tragic, incredible things. It says they are disgustingly, even dangerously antisocial. It talks about the Jekyll and Hyde personality and our lousy timing, all in one paragraph. By the time I finished that paragraph, it was clear to me, I actually am an alcoholic. I mean, I really am. That is, what's, that's the way I've been living my life since I was 16 years old. And so I, I began to read the book with a little more care. When I got to page 24, it promised me that I would drink again. Yeah, I mean, it's very clear. I'd been hallucinating all that time, and, and my liver was failing, my wife was leaving, but I was never stupid. I can read the words, and it suggested that the real alcoholic has lost the power to choose whether they will drink or not. It says they have no mental defense against the first drink. Well, that means I'm going to drink. And when I do, I'm going to relive page 21 over and over again. God, it was a hopeless moment for me. What am I supposed to do? I can't do that stuff you do. I don't believe in that stuff. What am I going to do? And about the only thing I could think to do is I said, well, in my desperation, I decided, okay, I'll go to their meetings. I'm not going to like them, but I'll go. And that Wednesday night, I went to my first meeting and discovered to my surprise that I liked the meetings. I didn't expect to like the meetings. 
I liked them then, I like them now. I've always liked them. I love to go to the speaker meetings. I like to hear the adventure stories. This one guy got up and said, I stole a battleship. Now, you got to like a guy like that, right? Yeah. And I've been thinking lately, how would you like to have an oil spill on your amends list? Huh? Let's see, there's mom and dad and Alaska. Holy shit. So I like the meetings. And I listened for hints about how do you stay sober? How do you actually do that? And I heard some. One of, them, one of them was get a sponsor. So I got a sponsor. And then I discovered rather quickly that he didn't have enough education to deal with somebody of my complexity. <laughs> uh, this is really pretty embarrassing. But I have to tell you that I, I gave my sponsor a quiz to be sure he was qualified to be my sponsor. Now, I didn't actually tell him it was a test. But I asked him a kind of a complicated question about the inter- psychological interrelatedness of the steps. You know, Let's see how he does with that. And Fred looked at me with these huge, gentle eyes. And he said, Jack, the steps are numbered for the intellectuals. (laughs) If you will do them in order, they will work. And I thought that was a pretty good answer, so I didn't fire him, you know. And in a couple of days, I got enough courage to, to tell him the truth. And I said, the truth is that I can't work the steps. I can't even work the second step. I can't come to believe that there is a power that will restore me. And he said, well, God comes to me through other people. Go to the meetings and search for God. I said, yeah, great. That's what I'll do. Oh, man. Of course God comes to Fred uh, through other people. How else would Fred get it? The man hardly reads. I mean, I figured if God were to come to me, it would have to be like in a white light on a mountaintop, you know what I mean? But I was trying not to drink, and I was trying to follow directions, so I did. I went to the meetings, and I, and I searched for God. I didn't find him, but I looked. I, I listened to the speakers with great intensity in the hopes that one of them would unlock that mystery for me. None of them did. I mean, I know this is a misperception, but it did seem to me like every speaker that I heard during that period... Uh, had about a third grade education they all got sober in Tyler, Texas and they were dispensing folk wisdom you know this one guy got up I swear he said if you do not believe in a power which is greater than yourself then jump up and stay there (laughs) what the hell is that? I did not think that was funny. I am sitting out there trying to find God, and this guy is telling me that gravity will restore me to sanity, you know. I don't see how that's going to work. About the only thing I could really do is something else that Fred said. He, he told me, no matter what, don't drink or use. And I made a list of no matter what. See, if those four kids never do speak to me again, I will not use or drink no matter what. If I never am able to work again, I will not use or drink no matter what. If if my wife of 17 years goes through with her plan to divorce me, I will not use, I will not drink. If she stays, I will not use, I will not drink, no matter what. If my mind is never restored to me, I will not use or drink. Now, uh, it took me 90 days to memorize the serenity prayer. I just couldn't hold it in my head. And, and my hallucinations did not disappear the day I got sober. 
I'm sitting next to Fred on a hot August night at the Brentwood Thursday night meeting, and, 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 and a huge black bug came flying right at me and then darted between my sponsor and me, and we ended up looking at each other. I didn't say anything. The first thing that was said, Fred said. He looked at me and he said, it was really there, Jack. <laughs> I didn't ask him, you know. I was pleased to hear it, but I would not ask him, you know. And when I was 30 days clean and sober, I had a spiritual experience. And it consisted of uh, being 30 days clean and sober. See, I really can't do that. I never could, never did, never tried. 30 days in a row. I couldn't get over that. I just couldn't believe it. And that is a spiritual experience precisely as it is described in that most profound of books, Alcoholics Anonymous, in a rather obscure section of our book called Appendix 2, where it says we tapped an unsuspected inner resource, which we presently came to identify with our own conception of a power greater than ourselves. Some of our religious-minded members call that God conscious. And I had tapped an unsuspected inner resource that made it possible for me to stay sober an incredible length of time, 30 days in a row. I went to Fred. I said, you know something? I think I'm beginning to work the second step. He wasn't all that impressed. He said, go and work the third step. And I did, and I've been doing that ever since. And it was right at that time that Fred began to put, take on the responsibility of Alcoholics Anonymous. And your theme for, for the conference uh, is that very thing. Because if you're relatively new here or recently out of a recovery center or a detoxification process or a 28-day program, let me tell you that Alcoholics Anonymous is not about not drinking. That is not what it is about. Alcoholics Anonymous is about living sober. And there is a difference between those two. And when I was 30 days sober, Fred began to teach me how to live sober. And uh, God, I hated the way he did it. <laughs> he, was, uh, he was a high school dropout, and one of the things he liked best to do was to define the words for me. You know, oh, I hated that. He said, okay, now you're going to have to give up resentment. And I said, okay, I will do that, Fred. He said, it's a very dangerous thing. For any alcoholic, resentment is the number one offender, and you must give it up. And I said, I'll do that. He said, let me tell you what the word means. I said, Fred, I know what the word means. And as if I had said nothing, he said, all right. Now, resentment is refeeling old injury. Well, I'd never quite thought of it like that. I mean, that was one of my skills. I was good at it. I was able to remember everything you ever did that hurt my feelings. I mean, if you forgot my name one time or, or were late for an appointment, it went in your file, you know, and I didn't forget it. And he said that all alcoholics are prone to resentment. And he was of the opinion that Irish alcoholics are even worse, you know. I have since heard that uh, about Irish Alzheimer's disease. I don't know if you've heard that. They forget everything but the grudges. <laughs> you know, that's, that's probably true. So... He told me I had to give up resentment, and I said I would. 
And then he said, now, you're going to have to be rigorously honest. I said, okay. And he said, let me tell you what the word means. <laughs> All right, Fred, what does it mean? He said, it's when your mind, your mouth, and your behavior coincide. Well, I'd never quite thought of it like that. My mind, my mouth, and my body had rarely been in the same room. You know? <laughs> he said, I'll give you an example. You're married. Well, I'd not thought of it like that either, you know. She was married, I knew that, but and he said, you know, if you're going to be rigorously honest and married, you have to be faithful. And I said, why? He said, well, you're not being faithful to the woman, you're being faithful to the promise you made. I said, well, Fred, I have been unfaithful in this relationship for the entire 17 years, to the best of my ability, you understand. He said, that's not how it works. I said, well, I'm not even sure I love her. He said, no, no, you don't. We teach that here. You learn how to love by doing loving things where you are. And in your case, we will start with politeness. Can you handle that? If she cooks, you say thank you. And I said, okay. And he said, and be faithful. And I said, I would. And I began to do that. And uh, I was three years sober and I called him to complain. I said, you know, I'm doing what you tell me, and I must admit it's working, I'm still sober, but she still does not trust me. And he said, well, let's figure how long it took you to teach her not to trust you. <laughs> well, we figured it was 17 years. So he said, well, by the, by the time you get 17 years clean and sober and faithful, then the score will be even. I said, oh, God, thanks a lot, you know. But I kept doing it. And one of the reasons I bring it up is because there have been gifts that have come to me as a result of this program that I didn't even know how to hope for. I, I wouldn't have imagined them. It's just stuff that I didn't, had never experienced. And one of them occurred in, in relation to this thing. Because somewhere along the line, it dawned on me that in those first 17 years, I had essentially one experience with a variety of women. And in the last 21 years and 7 months and 15 days, I've had a variety of experiences with one woman. And I know which is better. I've been on both sides of that fence. I know which is better. Uh, my sponsor died, it'll be 7 years this, ago this March, so he wasn't here to see it. But when I got 17 years, clean and sober and faithful, uh, Jean gave me a, a little medallion I wear around my neck. It says, 17, even. <laughs> and we've been together now 38 years and, and it's working, you know. She goes to Al-Anon and, and I go to where I belong with you. And Fred taught me a lot of things. Another thing that he taught me, and, and Dick insisted I be sure to, to... He taught me that there is a kind of a radio station that goes on in my head 24 hours a day, tells me lies and propaganda all the time. Day in, day out, lies to me. And he wanted me to listen to that radio station and try to find out what it was saying. Because he said you can't really change the station until you can hear the tune. And so... 
I started to try and learn what I'm thinking when I'm not thinking. And I heard some of these things, and you may recognize one or two yourself. I call this KVOE, that's the voice of the ego. And it goes like this. It says, I can't remember names. You can't trust anyone. It's going to be another one of those days. I just can't handle it. It's just no use. I just know it won't work. Nothing ever goes right for me. That's just my luck. I'm so clumsy. I don't have the talent. I'm just not creative. Everything I eat goes right to my waist. I just can't seem to get organized. Today just isn't my day. I can never afford the things I want. I already know I won't like it. I never have enough time. No matter what I do, I can't seem to lose weight. I'm always tired. I just don't have the patience for that. That really makes me mad. Another blue Monday. When will I ever learn? I get sick just thinking about it. Sometimes I just hate myself. What's the use? I'm just no good. I'm too shy. I never know what to say. I never had a chance. Things never work out right. I'm really out of shape. I never have any money. Why try? It's not going to work anyway. I've never been any good at that. My desk is always a mess. I never win anything. I'm over the hill. Someone always beats me to it. Nobody likes me. I never get a break. Sometimes I wish I'd never been born. I get so depressed. I'm just not a salesman. That's impossible. No way. I'm nothing without my first cup of coffee. I'll never get it right. I just can't take it anymore. I hate my job. I hate my wife. I hate my life. I get a cold this time of year. Every year. I'm really at the end of my rope. I never seem to get any place on time. I've always been bad with words. If only I were smarter, if only I were thinner, if only I were richer, if only she were taller, richer, smarter, if only, if only, if only. And that... That radio station played in my head, and I heard those things. And then he taught me that I could change that station. I, it... It seems to be on default. It always goes right there. But I can change it. And if I do, I can reach a station I call KVOG, which is the voice of God. And if I listen quietly and carefully, I can hear a still, small voice somewhere in the center of me that says you are whole, complete, and entire as you are, right now, lacking nothing, needing no one. And if I hear that voice, the whole thing changes for me. My life has changed completely. Those four children all speak to me these days. One of them has a little difficulty, but they all do. Each of them have told me they love me. And, and they have given us six grandchildren. And my oldest grandchild is 20. And my youngest is two. And that means that none of my grandchildren have ever seen me drink. They think an alcoholic is somebody that goes to meetings. <laughs> When Paloma was five on her fifth birthday, I was in Grand Forks, and, and, and I called Paloma in California uh, to wish her a happy birthday on her fifth, and, and she said, where are you, Pa Jack? And I told her, and she said, uh, are you at one of those meetings? And I said, yes, and she said, tell them, keep coming back, it works. <laughs> she does not know how well she spoke. Her father was 12 when I got sober. Her father was, when I was trying to sort out those green lights, uh, he was standing inside the darkness of our front room at 12 with a ball bat in his hand waiting for me to come home in case he needed to defend his mother. Nowadays he has two children. He went to Notre Dame, he tells me, because I did. That's a long way from where we started. He likes to have, whenever possible, he likes to have 
me babysit those two children because I'm the one he trusts. That's a long way from where we started. It's an amazing gift, Alcoholics Anonymous. It's been given to you and to me. And only you and I have been given the power, the, the authority, or the responsibility of passing it on. Nobody else can do it. They can get us started. They can point us in the right direction. But only you and I can pass it on. Nobody else. It, you know, we're in 92 countries now and at last count. And uh, the thing I love about it is there is only... The, the primary thing people know about us all over the world is that one drunk talks to another. And what I'm always amused about is they never bother to say what we say to each other. And the fact is, it doesn't matter what we say to each other. As long as we're together, as long as we are in touch with one another, the healing happens. It is an incredible thing. I had the privilege of being the best job I've had so far in AA. Uh, just recently, I was uh, program chairman for the uh, Southern California area old-timers event. And, uh, and we had 85 people with 30 years or more. You know, one of them was Mike, Mike Z, who has 46 years, and he's 104 years old, and he was there, you know. And uh, the power of the program is demonstrated by somebody with, with 104 days or 46 years, or my friend Sybil, who's coming up on 52 years of sobriety. You know, it's, it is... A gift beyond my imagining and you and I have been given the responsibility to help each other learn how to live sober there's an old-timer out my way that found the words that describe this fellowship for me better than any I've ever heard he found them in Gibran it says through the hands of such as these God speaks and from behind their eyes he smiles upon the earth you know when I came to you the only thing I ever had was busted dreams that never turned out. I, I, when I graduated, I, all I ever wanted to be was a writer, and all through my drinking days, I couldn't do it. I'd start things and never finish them. And my sponsor told me when I got sober, the only thing I ever had to do was finish what I started. He said, it doesn't have to be good, it has to be done. And gradually, the gift that I wanted so badly has come back to me. And I just want to leave you with this little statement about some things that have happened in my life since I met you. I seek the light. God is not out there trying to get in. God is in here trying to get out. I am a spirit living in this skin. I will choose faith rather than doubt. And yet, and yet sometimes it isn't at all clear why must pain be disappointment, a child betrayed. Why must the light be so distant and rage so near? Why must each one, adult and child, you and I, always be afraid? But I diligently seek the light in you, the smile from your last bed, the tenderness that often accompanies age, an unasked kindness, a fatherly hand on a tousled head, Light reflects, it pushes back the dark, and somehow opens up the cage.
Thank you.